Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And God, our, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher by the a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephen. I think you had the longest passage in city church history that you had to read. You did a fine job. Let's pray. Father, we confess that often when we come to worship, we recognize that our hearts are cold, our hearts are hard, and we need you to come and soften them. So, Father, we pray that as we come before your word, that you would do just that, that you would soften our hearts so that we can hear your voice and be changed by you. In Christ's name, amen. Throughout, uh, throughout history, there's been uh, movements that have happened, movements that have happened where uh, something significant happens or uh, something starts, 
It's influential for a short period of time, and then what happens often is that then fades into history, and no one really thinks about it anymore. Uh, One such movement happened in in 1975. In 1975, an advertising uh, executive named Gary Dahl was sitting around and listening to all his friends complain about their pets. They were annoyed they had to take the dog out for a walk when it was raining and, and do all the things that they didn't want to have to do with their pets. So he came up with a great idea. He invented the pet rock. This was a rock that was, had eyes on it, and you could talk to it, you could interact with it. When you bought a pet rock, it would come in a box that was complete with a feeding spout, for what, I don't know, and breathing holes in it, and an instruction manual on how you should take care of your pet rock. Well, Gary was pretty successful in this. It was the rage in 1975 for about six months. He sold 1.5 million pet rocks and he himself became a millionaire. But the pet rock movement sadly only lasted for about six months. It was a movement that was here for a little while and then was gone. Think about all the, the diet movements that have come and gone throughout history. Think about Uh, Think about all the reports that say red wine is the best thing to drink for your health and then six months later all the reports that say it's horrible for your health and the reports that say the same about coffee and then those reports refute it. Think about all the things that have come and gone throughout human history and even bigger movements. Think of the movements that happened in the the 1960s, the hippie movement. Think of the green movement. Think of the feminist movements. These are all movements that had their day. It was the most important thing in their day, and they radically influenced culture and society for a short period of time, but then after a while, they simply faded into history. But what about this movement of Jesus? What about this movement of God that our passage talks about? to us about. See, our passage ends, we'll start at the back, our passage ends with the followers of Jesus in a very difficult and dangerous place. They have been dragged into uh, the court of the day for a second time. They were told in Acts 4 that they were not to preach the name of Jesus Christ, but of course they did it anyway, and they found themselves in front of the court once again. This court was divided into two parties. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they often govern in the same way that we as parents often govern our kids. The Sadducees were the parent that was the hard-nosed disciplinarian that didn't want to let anybody get away with anything. But the Pharisees were the calmer ones, the calmer parent, the more moderate voice. And on this day, the moderate voice of the Pharisee Gamaliel won the day. They're about, they, they have Jesus' followers in their presence, and they're about to, to do horrible things to them, and then Gamaliel quietly steps in, and he says, let's think about this. He mentions other movements throughout human history, the movement of Judas the Galilean, the movement of Thaddeus, and he rightly says, these were movements of men that had their day, and then they faded away into history. And what he quietly says to his compatriots is that if this is the work of man, then it will fizzle away. But if it is the work of God, it will not be stopped. We've all heard of of Karl Marx before and the writings of Karl Marx in the mid-1800s. 
And one of the most famous things he ever said about religion or about Christianity was that it was the opium of the people or the opiate of the masses. What he was arguing is that Christianity or religion is an invention of man and because of that we need to simply move on. We need to become more enlightened and let go of this invention of man. And he believed eventually it would go away. Yet he wrote these words in the mid-1800s, or the mid when the movement of Jesus was still going 1,800 years after Christ's life. And the movement has outlived him. And even today, we can look and see how this movement of Jesus changes lives all over the world. Why? Because it is a movement of God and not of men. The book of Acts that we've been looking at uh, records for us uh, the first steps of this movement, the first steps of Jesus' followers in the first century world. It tells us about what his people did after Jesus returned back into heaven to be with the Father. But if you read the entire book, you'll notice that the book ends very abruptly. It doesn't tie up in a nice little, nice little bow at the very end because Luke wants to tell us something. He wants us to see how this movement of Jesus changed the fabric of the first century world, but he also wants us to see that that movement continues even into our day. And this morning, very quickly, what I'd like us to see is three elements of this movement of God that were true in the day of Acts and are also true of the movement as it goes out today. The first thing I want us to see, which you see in the very beginning of our passage in verses 12 to 16, is that the movement of God is His work of recreation. The movement of God is His work of recreation. Last week we saw something beautiful. We talked about how uh, when we look at the book of Acts, we see very unique things happening during this time period. The movement of God certainly continues today, but when we look at the book of Acts, we see that God did really unique things at the beginning here. We looked at the powerful sense of community that God's believers had in the first century. And our passage tells us that Jesus' followers back then would gather in places like Solomon's portico, which was the center of the city of Jerusalem, the center of the temple. And it talks about how when they were there, they began healing people. They began performing miracles. Signs and wonders were being performed by them in the name of Jesus. They were signs and wonders that were intended to authenticate the message that they were preaching. And our passage tells us that people brought them the sick and the crippled. And Jesus' followers healed them in incredibly miraculous ways. You see, we saw last week how there was this incredible sense of community, and what it was is that it created heaven on earth, or at least a very small taste of heaven on earth. And you see that again in this passage, where you see the sick and the crippled and the lame being healed by the name of Jesus. You see, the scriptures don't talk much about heaven. There's not a whole lot that it tells us about heaven, even though it tells us that it is a very real place. But it's a real place that is free from sickness. It is free from affliction. It is free free from tears. It's a place where all the frailties that you and I deal with in life, 
The big things and the little things, the little aches and pains that we feel and the big diseases we contend with, it is a place that is free from all those things. It is a place where God has removed all that is broken from this world. So what we see here is God is giving the first century world another small taste of what heaven's going to look like. You see, the movement of Jesus is a movement in which God is gradually writing all the things that has gone wrong in this world. It is a work of recreation. And we see tastes and we see appetizers of that kingdom in the book of Acts. We see it in our midst today. And ultimately we know that it will be realized when Christ returns to bring an end to all things. What was happening here was so unique and it was so significant. It was so powerful that even the, the, even the detractors, even the people that wanted to arrest the first century followers said that even the whole city is being filled with the talk of Jesus. It says this in verse 28, when the court brings them in and says, you are filling the entire city with talk of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you lived in Baltimore two years ago, but something really substantial happened, happened in Baltimore two years ago. The Ravens were in the news for a good reason, and that's because they had gone through the playoffs and they had won the Super Bowl. And what was so neat about that moment is that everyone in the city, I mean everyone, whether you like them or not, was talking about the Ravens. Black, white, rich, poor, middle class, upper class, lower class, everyone was talking about the Ravens. No division was exempt from talking about the Ravens. And the city threw a parade, they threw a party for 200,000 people that descended upon downtown because the whole city had nothing to talk about except for the Ravens. And this is what I picture is happening here in Jerusalem. The whole city was abuzz, not about a football team or not about some political person that had risen to power. The whole city was talking about Jesus. Why? Because they were experiencing a very small taste of heaven. They were tasting an appetizer of how good things will ultimately be when God finishes his work of recreation. And as we saw last week, we see it again this week. The church, God's people here and now is to be this taste for our world. And how beautiful would it be for even the city of Baltimore to be abuzz about the name of Jesus Christ because his church is experiencing and exhibiting a small taste of heaven here on earth. It will only happen as we, his church, demonstrate in the midst of a broken world, the recreative power of the work of God. So we see the movement of God's a work of, cre- of recreation, but we also see that the movement of God was centered on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 29, when the apostles were brought before the court, it says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Our passage talks about, in verse 18, about how Jesus' followers were arrested. 
And then miraculously, in the middle of the night, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to them and released them from being in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were arrested and then miraculously released, I would go hide. I would go to my house, I would bunker down, I would try to avoid being arrested once again for the thing that I'm not supposed to do. I would stay out of plain sight, but not the followers of Jesus. Our passage tells us they saw their release as an opportunity, an opportunity for them to continue to share the story of Jesus to everyone they rub shoulders with. So what they did upon their release is they immediately went back to the center of town and continued to share the name of Jesus with others. So as expected, once again, they are arrested and they are brought before the court. And they could see this as an opportunity to get kind of down in the mouth about it or be upset about it or frustrated that, yes, again, we've been arrested, but they see that as an opportunity again. Not as an opportunity to negotiate their release, but an opportunity to share the story of Jesus and what it means for them who are most responsible, even for Christ's death. They remind this court that they are brought before them that Jesus was not just a radical, but that he was God himself. God made flesh, God who took on skin, and, he, they, he, and they even remind them that this is the court, that they were the very ones that condemned Jesus to death. They were the ones that crucified him on the tree, but then they share with them that the grave could not hold Jesus Christ. But instead, on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that he could be their savior, so that he could offer them, even them, those responsible for his crucifixion, that he could offer even them the forgiveness of their sins. You see, this was the simple and consistent message of the movement of God. It started with Jesus and it ended with Jesus. And to step away from the message of Jesus is to step away from the movement of God. C.S. Lewis said, Christ is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He's forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. See, what Lewis is saying, what the first apostles said, was that Jesus is really the only true source of life. And without Jesus, this movement would be nothing more than just another fad or just another movement of man. But with Jesus, it is the very movement of God. And the same is true for us and even what we do here every Sunday morning. Without Jesus, what the church is is nothing more than an affinity group, nothing more than a social club or a bunch of people that like to get together on a Sunday morning. But with Jesus, the church is the very movement of God. It is his instrument to change our world. Finally, we see at the very end that the movement of God walks the path that Jesus walked. It isn't just linked to Jesus in terms of its teaching, but it also walks the path that Jesus walks. It says in the end of verse 39, So they took Gamaliel's advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. 
Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and of course we know that Luke also wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. And in very many ways, he intended those two volumes to be read together, to, be, to have his first volume read about Jesus, and then have his second volume read about the followers of Jesus after he returned to heaven. And if you put the two volumes side by side, they're not side by side in your Bible, but if you put them side by side, you begin to see something emerge. You begin to see that the very things that happened to Jesus begin to happen to his followers. His followers perform miracles just as Jesus did. And our passage tells us about about how people were healed simply by, by being in Peter's shadow. And it reminds us of Luke chapter 8, where people felt that if they just touched Jesus' garment, they would be healed by him. You see that Jesus' followers are arrested just as Jesus was. You see they're tried by the very same religious court that condemned Jesus. They're brought before the very same council, the very same high priest, the very same people that crucified Jesus. And our passage tells us in verse 40, that they were flogged and beaten just as Jesus was. Flogging was this this ancient method of punishment in which people would be uh, whipped for their crimes. But it wasn't just a regular whip. It was a whip with several strands that actually had bone fragments on the end of them. And it was so serious that every time a person was whipped by one of these these whips, the bone fragments would actually dig into their skin and pull sections of their back away from them. It was so severe that the Jews believed you could only do it 39 times to someone because if you did it 40 times, it would end up taking their life. And Luke reminds us in chapter 22 of his gospel that Jesus suffered this. And here in Acts, we see his apostles, his followers, suffering the very same thing. But remarkably, afterwards, it says in verse 41 that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Some have called this a beautiful antithesis, an antithesis of the honored Uh, of them feeling honored to be dishonored, or them feeling graced to be disgraced. But for whatever reason, they found joy in receiving this dishonor because they received it in the name of Jesus Christ. They found joy. Why? Because they rightly understood that they were a part of a movement of God. It was a movement of God that was a movement of recreation, a movement of God that was centered on Jesus Christ, and it was a movement that walks the very same path as Jesus. It would not be an easy path, but they knew that it was the only path in which to find true life. And if you read through our our passage, you'll notice lots of different responses that people had to Jesus. Some walked away from him. They walked away from the apostles' teaching. They could care less. They were aloof. Others were fearful and walked away because it threatened their status. It threatened their power. It threatened their self-importance. Some were filled with jealousy. Some were enraged. But others, in fact, multitudes, our passage tells us, men and women, 
found life in Jesus Christ. Luke wants us to ask that most important question. And that is, what will our response be? What will our response be to Jesus? What will our response to be to this life-giving message of the gospel? Because thousands in the first century world found this to be good news. News that was so good that it was worth dying for. Sadly, the eyes of the world have been focused on Baltimore this week. We'd like to think it was because of the star-spangled celebration that we celebrated here in this city this weekend, but sadly, we've been in the news for other things. We've been in the news mostly for a a videotape that was released about uh, one of Baltimore's residents, a football player, showing an incredible moment of indiscretion and brutality. And it's been hard to look away. It's been hard to not follow this story. And it's been very interesting to see not only our city's response, but also the media's response to this videotape that's been out. I've had lots of thoughts about it as I've reflected on it and watched the the national news and the local news and, and chatted with many of you about it. But one of the most basic feelings I've really felt all throughout the week is that I'm just thankful that there's no videotape recording my personal moments of indiscretion that I commit every single day. Moments where I don't follow God, moments where I follow my own path, moments where I rebel against Him, moments where I hurt those that are closest to me, my friends and family, and I'm so thankful that that's not on videotape for the entire world to see. But then I sat and reflected on the fact that God sees all things. There may not be a videotape about my behavior, but God sees it. The person whose opinion matters most sees everything that I do. He not just sees, he doesn't just see my behavior, but he sees my thoughts, my inner thoughts and my inner actions. He sees the things that nobody else sees, the things that I would be ashamed for anybody else to see. He knows it all about me. And yet, despite it all, He chooses to love me, and he offers forgiveness. Because his sacrifice was enough to purchase for you and for me the forgiveness that we most desperately need. Friends, this is good news. That forgiveness is available for you and I in Jesus Christ. This is good news that is worth dying for.